All right, I'm going to be reading Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, the 12 apostles. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as the sun rose this morning, uh, I was taking a walk in the park, walking and praying. Uh, I'm a kinetic processor and have found that inner stillness, ironically, comes easiest for me in physical movement. So I'm on a regular prayer walk. This is a part of my routine. And there's always a few characters who are in the park with me as well. There's a couple of dog walkers, uh, some older folks who are early risers, and a few waking up from another night out in the cold without a roof over their heads. And all of us, we politely observe the unwritten road or the unwritten rules of urban conduct, which is do not speak to one another, avert your eyes, head nod at most, but to each their own. Uh, I make coffee at home every morning. But on Sunday, sometimes I like to treat myself to a very fancy cup of some of Portland's finest. So this morning, I was then in line at heart. And what did everyone do in line as they stood there waiting those 120 seconds to place their order? Yeah, they took a tiny little screen out of their pocket and they distracted themselves. Uh, One guy ahead of me must have been a regular because he carried on this friendly conversation with the person running the cash register for what must have been 45 unbearable seconds for me. As I stood there behind him trying to make eye contact with the cashier like, this is absurd, how dare you? (laughs) When I finally made it to the front, this is what I said, 12 ounce, black, no room. You got it. He scanned my card and I moved on. I then acrobatically cycled here, uh, holding a hot cup of coffee in one hand while trying to operate my bicycle with the other. I passed all sorts of people on the sidewalks, didn't interact with a single one of them, even more people in vehicles or bicycles that were passing me in the other way. All these people, neighbors to me, all of these people, strangers to me, That was my morning. And yours probably wasn't entirely different. And if this evening I was asked to pick out any of those neighbors that I interacted with today out of a lineup, like the people that I passed this morning as I was in prayer in the park, or the people that stood next to me in line at heart, or that I rode my bike past on the sidewalk, or the cashier that I so quickly spoke with, If I was asked to pick out any one of them from a lineup later tonight, I doubt that I could do it. Sebastian Younger, in his fascinating little book, Tribe, writes, a person living in a modern city or suburb can, for the first time in history, go through an entire day or an entire life mostly encountering complete strangers. They can be surrounded by others and yet feel deeply, dangerously alone. 
So what is the effect of that on the human person, the psychological experience of this sociological phenomenon? What is living surrounded but unknown doing to me and to you? Well, according to research from Duke University, the number of close confidants, which is defined as uh, the sort of friend that would meet you at the movies uh, on an evening or might meet you at the hospital in the middle of the night in the midst of an emergency, the number of close confidants or the percentage of Americans who said they don't have a single close confidant has tripled in the last 20 years. The percentage of Americans who said they have no close friends has quadrupled in that same time period. And over half of modern Americans report that they sometimes or always feel like no one knows them well. The loneliness epidemic in our culture is raging. And this is alarming, not just for social, but also for medical reasons, with doctors identifying loneliness as a foundational contributor to aggression, depression, alcoholism, drug abuse, Alzheimer's, and a number of chronic illnesses. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote in the Harvard Business Review, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, but loneliness. The deepest human longing is to be fully known and fully loved. The greatest human fear is to be fully known and unloved. And so the human experience we mostly settle for is to be unknowable and therefore unlovable. A soul-crushing experience summarized in the single word, loneliness. I doubt that I could pick out any of those faces, any of those people from my morning out of a lineup this evening because they're strangers. But they're also neighbors. And that admission is particularly troubling to me because of what Jesus, my rabbi, called the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So is my way of being in the world, the, the way of being that I've learned from the unwritten rules of urban America, is it competing with my discipleship to Jesus? You see, I believe that the antidote to the deep ache that we both read on the pages of scripture and see if we just look at the city around us is the same. It is God's person experienced among God's people. So practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. That's our mission. It's what we're about around here. It's what we've always been about. It's what we'll always be about. It is the foundation of this house. And today's teaching is a sequel. It is a continuation from a week ago, an invitation to join or to rejoin that very mission. So last Sunday, we defined discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus on an individual level through these three, or this three-part frame, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And today, we will return to that very same vision that we'll be zeroing in on the second half, practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. That's part two, and it is the subject for today. So practicing the way of Jesus together. The teaching text that was read just a moment ago uh, probably sounds like a sleepy roll call to the vast majority of us, but it was a stick of dynamite in ancient years. 
Jesus' 12 closest disciples relationally bridged the socioeconomic, ideological, and political lines of ancient Israel. Blue-collar workers, tax collectors, and zealots, they're all right in there together. So you've got tribal tension, vocational tension, class tension, political tension, social tension, and we're just talking about the 12 here, the inner ring of his followers. It's so beautiful today if we reflect back on the compelling outcome of such intentional diversity, even at the very core of early church leadership. But for the individuals that Jesus called, there was real discomfort and definite tension that they had to work through together in order to follow him. And the early church that grew from the apostles was both sides of that coin. It was compelling, redemptive, a stick of dynamite in the social architecture of the ancient Greco-Roman world, and it was an absolute mess of relational tension and conflict and division that needed mending. I mean, they, they were hospitable and loving and generous and sacrificial and a revolutionary family, and the day in and day out experience within that family included conflict, segregation, incest, false teaching, cultural colonization, and ignoring the poor. Those are just a few of the issues that are directly dealt with in the early church on the pages of the New Testament. It was a mess, a lively, compelling mess, but we shouldn't mistake the early church for anything but a mess. Eugene Peterson, after he finished translating the entirety of the Bible, concluded, There are no successful congregations in Scripture. So given all the messiness of the family, maybe apprenticeship to Jesus is better lived as a solo journey after all. I mean, that's the conclusion that many are drawing today. There's this growing sentiment that goes something like this. I'm into Jesus, but not the church. And first, I should say that much of the felt experience behind a statement like that one is completely legitimate. Historically and recently, some, not all, but some Christian churches have been guilty of financial corruption, racism, manipulation, abuse in every variety, and ego-driven, self-centered kingdom building. And that's tragic when we view it on a mass scale, but of course the real tragedy is the individuals with, that, that live underneath those blanket statements for whom the church has been more of a wounding family than a healing one. And if that is your story as a leader in the Christian church, I just want to say I'm so, so sorry. That isn't the rabbi that we follow, and it isn't the heart or intention behind this church. But secondly, I do want to say that the major problem with I'm into Jesus and not the church is Jesus. If you're really into Jesus, you know the church was never optional in his mind. Jesus was the furthest thing from anti-institutional. He regularly led his followers into the two religious institutions of the first century, the synagogue and the temple. And those institutions' faults are well documented. But despite Jesus' own legitimate criticism of the church of his day, he still did not abandon the church of his day. He didn't turn a blind eye and pretend it's all good, but he also didn't boycott the place and start a new institution. He kept showing up, kept praying with the people in the pews. He kept receiving the word in the context of his brothers and sisters. Jesus' disciples followed him into places the temple would not touch. They followed him to the leper colony and among sex workers and to Gentile cities that were feared. And they followed him into the very imperfect temple. 
for Passover and other festivals, for daily fixed hours of prayer and for Sabbath worship. After his resurrection and ascension, Jesus' disciples kept frequenting both of those places, the temple and the people in places that the temple avoided. Following Jesus means following him into communities of healing who are also riddled with the disease. And so if you're looking for a solitary, just me, my earbuds, an Icelandic ambient playlist, and a journal version of following Jesus, you will not find it on the pages of scripture. Biblically speaking, there is no version of following Jesus apart from the simple but profound word, together. Let me just give you the Cliffs notes real quick. Genesis 1 presents creation with a rhythmic cadence. It's appropriate for an oral oral tradition. God creates, sees, and then calls it good. Creates, sees, good. Creates, sees, good. Creates, sees, good. Until, like a record scratch in the cadence, God creates, sees, not good. What is the first thing in the biblical story that is called not good? It wasn't when Adam and Eve plucked the forbidden fruit. It was before that, before sin. It is not good that the man should be alone. So the biblical picture of paradise, of heaven on earth, of human flourishing is in community, not in isolation. At this point, uh, Adam has meaningful work. He's got provision for his every need. He has unbroken union with God. But Adam did not have community. He was not together. The first problem in the Bible is not sin. It's isolation. It's loneliness. Even the Genesis portrait of God himself stood in stark contrast to the imagined divinities of other Greco-Roman and ancient Near Eastern myths. Every other ancient conception of God imagined a creator who is a solitary God. And then comes along the biblical story whose opening line, I'm talking about sentence one on page one, presents us with a triune God. Three persons, one God. A God in community. The startling claim of Christianity stretching all the way back to the story's very beginning is not just that God is relational, it's that God is relationship. It's not just that God is communal, it's that God is community. Now, of course, the biblical story is not one of relational harmony and bliss. It's one of human rebellion and divine redemption. And so then, moving along, God started his redemption plan a whole lot like he started his creation plan with one new family, Abraham and Sarah. And through that family, he gives birth to a nation carrying a promise from God for a blessing for the entirety of the world. I will become one of you. And I won't sort out the world's problems from a safe distance. I will get right down there into the mess with you. Jesus then shows up as the fulfillment of that promise and the embodiment of that blessing. And he starts his ministry by calling disciples. And he did not invite the 12 on a dozen different solo journeys It was the same journey. The unspoken implication behind discipleship to Jesus is this. You didn't choose each other, but if it's me you're following, you're stuck with each other. When he was asked the greatest commandment, Jesus gave the predictable answer that any rabbi would give. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. But then, I imagine, probably after a dramatic pause, he added, and a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
So according to Jesus, love of God and love of neighbor are inseparable from one another. Mike Mason writes, the quality of our spiritual life is no better than the quality of our human relationships. And the way we interact with other people is an accurate picture of our connection to God. And that is why, as we concluded a week ago, the aim of all spiritual formation is not personal peace or balance. It is to become a gift of love for the sake of others. And the gauge of our spiritual formation is not some sort of measuring of activities on a spiritual checklist. Rather, it is to ask myself, am I becoming a person of love to the people who know me best and interact with me most frequently? Then after the resurrection, the church started with Pentecost, a moment when the Spirit fell on everyone in the room and immediately started expanding the family from just a handful of Jews to people from every region and sect, speaking every kind of language, and then eventually transcending the entirety of the nation of Israel to become a blessing, as God said at first, to all peoples. The New Testament letters that follow are overwhelmingly written to communities on pilgrimage together, not to individuals, and the Bible ends with Revelation, a wedding reception where many peoples will form one bride. The Bible, cover to cover, is a story about God redeeming the world through community. If you had to sum the whole thing up in a single word, I'd probably go with together. All to say, a solo spiritual journey is not the way of Jesus, but a modern invention. Many very legitimate grievances have been levied against the church of our time, and I get that, I really do. But even Jesus himself, the harshest critic of the temple's corruption of his time, was also a participant in temple life. He still immersed himself in temple relationships. He still went to the temple for prayer. He still sat under and received and added his own voice to the temple's teaching. What the life of Jesus unmistakably tells us is this. There is no version of being with Jesus that doesn't stick me with others as well. And others that I didn't handpick. Others that include a few people that I would dismiss from the group if I could. The Catholic theologian Frederick Bauerschmidt writes... The New Testament typically uses the term church for those people who have been called together by the Spirit after the resurrection of Jesus. And the Spirit seems to have made some rather surprising choices. <laughs> there is no version of practicing the way of Jesus that does not include the imperative together. So practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland... The Gospel writer Mark, in particular, seems intent on identifying the incarnate God with a place, a local ordinary community, like a place with a main street and a public school system and a square mile radius, a particular patch of dirt in the creation that he spoke into being in the first place. The Son of God is called Jesus of Nazareth six times in the Gospels, and four of those belong to Mark. When Mark writes about God, he asks us to remember that God, aiming to reveal his heart and character to the world most fully, to act most decisively to redeem the human race, tied himself to a people, a community, a place. And because we follow Jesus of Nazareth, we practice the way of Jesus together in Portland. You see, worship in Israel's history has always been communal decidedly relational 
and local. Modern technology threatens to strip worship of both. The the worship of Jesus of Nazareth can now be a privatized, commoditized act. You can podcast your favorite preacher and listen to Maverick City's new worship album and occasionally discuss what you're learning with a few friends that you happen to connect with best from all over the place, all of which are good things, so long as they don't replace the relational and the local. You see, we have the option of designing our own worship experience stripped from a people and a place, a physical place, a way of worshiping Jesus of Nazareth, the one that they called Emmanuel, God with us, without us. Do you see the subtle deception there? A disincarnate way to worship the incarnate God. Eugene Peterson says, because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, gathered disciples in Galilee, Worshipped in synagogues, ate meals in Bethany, went to a wedding at Cana, told stories in Jericho, prayed in Gethsemane, led a parade down the Mount of Olives, taught in the Jerusalem temple, was killed on the hill Golgotha, and three days later had supper with Cleopas and his friend in Emmaus. We are not free to make up our own private spiritualities. Now don't misunderstand me here. I'm, I'm not anti-technology. So much good has come from the availability of worship more broadly. See live streaming during the pandemic, supplemental teaching to aid your devotion to God and his people, uh, turning the cab of your car into the holy of holies when you're stuck in traffic. (laughs) But we must be careful to not let our technology outpace our theology, to not allow our technology to strip our worship of the local, and the relational. We worship Jesus, God incarnate, but apart from gathering together bodily and locally together, we ironically worship the incarnate God in a disincarnate way. A solo spiritual journey is a modern invention and likewise an unlocalized spiritual journey is a modern invention. Practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland Together is the hinge this phrase turns on. It is a defining uh, word in both our experience and our commitment if Jesus is the rabbi that we are going after. And together is a word that simultaneously holds together joy, formation, and witness. So together is our joy. Most of us are robbed of the gift of joy simply by our struggle to embrace the actual in the present. Uh, We tend to be more optimist or pessimist and to live more in the past or the future. For instance, uh, you might be someone who struggles to receive what God has for you through others today because you are stuck on a mistake you made yesterday or last week or because you're already dreading something that is coming tomorrow. And either way, that's robbing you of joy, which is always a gift given in the actual and at the present moment. I happen to be a dreamer and an idealist who is always on to the next thing. So I'm a future-oriented optimist, meaning the thief of my joy is that I am forever planning how awesome the next thing could be. I'm daydreaming currently about that perfect fall Saturday at the pumpkin patch with my family, 
when my kids are cooperatively frolicking in the corn maze, and Kirsten and I are laughing and talking together as the sun kisses our face and there's a crisp cool in the air, and little Amos is just hand-feeding me bits of a pumpkin spice muffin. Um, and the trouble with that daydream is that when the actual day comes around that we go to the pumpkin patch, it'll inevitably be a disappointment, right? It's gonna be gray and drizzling. Hank's gonna be too cool for the whole experience even though he's only seven. Amos is gonna be screaming at me from point blank range for a reason that I cannot get to the bottom of, no matter how many things I try. Simon's gonna be crying because he was convinced we were going berry picking and there's no berries and he can't get his mind around the seasonal concept. And Kirsten's gonna to be too emotionally exhausted from doing this all week to really talk and laugh with me. But the people that I'm together with, they are the gift. Right, being present with these people in the actual moments, it's both the joy of my life and the fight of my life. The enemy of the evening that I will have tonight with my family when I get home is my daydream about the evening I will have with my family tonight when I get home. The ideal robs us of the gift of the actual. And so I wrote a prayer a couple of months ago. It's a prayer to get in touch with the actual, to receive the gift of joy in the present. It is a sober-minded prayer aimed at grounding my feet in the present moment and at receiving joy. And I read this prayer in the evening when I'm leaving work and I'm heading home. And it goes like this. The house will not be perfect. There will be something about the food not to your preference. Your children's behavior, the volume of their voices, and their moods will all not be ideal. They are children. Bless them to be childlike. Offer them presence rather than demand perfection. Your wife's affection will not belong solely to you. She, like you, has had an unpredictable day filled with interruptions. She, like you, needs rest and companionship. Mellowness of spirit and a forgiving heart are aspects of discipleship to Jesus. Offer her these gifts. You will ache to return to this evening in old age. Be completely there tonight while you have the chance. Amen. You see, this joy principle, it applies equally to the evening I'll spend with my family tonight and your experience in the church today. To experience joy today in the new family of Jesus, you have to be here in the actual and the present to experience the gift of joy in the new family of Jesus midweek this week when you gather around the table with your community, you have to receive that gift from him in the actual and in the present. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote, those who love their dream of the Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself will become destroyers of the Christian community even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. In short, what he's saying is the church we want very quickly becomes the enemy of the church that we actually have. And until we can love one another as we are, messy and incomplete, underwhelming and apathetic, well-intentioned but flaky, we cannot become who God has made us to be. Until I can love you without demanding that you change or grow or mature in some way that I want you to, and you can love me in the same way, we are dead in the water. 
See, we often retell stories of extraordinary impact in the high points of church history, and sometimes God really does use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. But more often, seemingly, his subtle but preferred method of redeeming the world is to use ordinary people to do ordinary things with extraordinary love. Loving the actual community just as she is, that is the dream. And there lies your joy. So together is our joy, and together is our formation. When it comes to church today, as we've already acknowledged, we have options, right? If you don't particularly enjoy this church, there's plenty of others waiting for you next Sunday. We have options, and the earliest believers didn't. And there's a whole lot of good about those options, but alongside the good, there's equally threats that would stunt our spiritual formation, even while they appeal to our preferences and tastes. It was about the fifth century when the way of Jesus had spread so broadly that options became the norm for many of his followers. And at that time, St. Benedict authored the Benedictine Rule, which is still used today in abbeys and monasteries all over the world. Even just within an hour's drive from here, there is a Benedictine Abbey. Now, distinct from other monastic writings, Benedict's, Benedict's Rule includes the vow of stability which is a vow that was taken uh, to the monks and that called them to root their lives in a particular place among a, a just one small community over the long haul. It is a vow to take the good and the bad with others who will join this fold. So now why a vow of stability? Well, because Benedict was observing all the ways that instability, meaning a spirituality filled with options, was actually stunting spiritual maturity. In his rule, he writes of a group of monks named gyrovegs, which is a combination of two Latin words, gyro meaning circle and vegs meaning wander. Gyrovegs were those who were wandering in circles. People who are deeply committed to Jesus but who find themselves bouncing from community to community. Does that description sound familiar at all? bouncing from one community to the next, never able to really root themselves in a home over a long haul, spending six months or a year in this church or that church, and then moving on only to start that cycle over again, making a friend or two, but never really belonging to a people that I didn't hand select and filter. And his point stands today, apart from a local, rooted, ordinary, frequently disappointing, often underwhelming, and in the unfamiliar context, we stunt our own spiritual growth. The vow of stability, and this is so important, is not a critique of options. It is a pathway to maturity. Because fruit requires deep roots. The fruit of the Spirit is not grown in us abstractly, but rooted among a people and in a place. Right? We grow in patience by bearing with difficult people when getting away from them would be a whole lot easier. We grow in goodness and relationships to those who treat us badly when we don't immediately write them off. We learn to love by proximity to enemies, by people who are something less than loving to us. And self-control grows in the very soil where we're tempted toward outbursts of gossip or anger. The bishop and theologian Rowan Williams says, if you leave a church community too quickly, you will find leaving becomes a habit. Sooner or later, you have to confront the challenge of being pledged to uncomfortable reality 
and of how to cope with the inner restlessness which constantly suggests what look like simpler solutions, avoiding the difficult route of changing yourself. You see, spiritual maturity is relational. The way of Jesus essentially involves community because without community, there is no way for us to grow to become more like Jesus. Without the church, and I'm not talking about the flavor of the month new preacher or, or your favorite community that sparks up until it lets you down inevitably, without the people named the church, we cannot be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. In the words of Henry Nouwen, the church will never cease to get in the way of Jesus, but the church will never cease to be the way of Jesus. Now look, as a necessary caveat here, I need you to hear me say as clearly as I can that I realize that there are times for change. There are good reasons for change. And there are times where changes come and choose us rather than us choosing them. I'm simply trying to point out that there's equally caution in wandering in circles when it comes to community. The fruit of the Spirit is grown in community, so stay and ask God to grow up in you uh, both joy and maturity through the discomfort of staying. And then finally, together is our witness. Sometime around the year AD 50, a handful of people gathered around the table of a man named Gaius in the Greco-Roman city of Corinth. In the radically individualized modern world, we typically get to know someone by asking them, what do you do? But in the more communal ancient world, they didn't ask what, but who. A question aimed not at someone's vocation, but at their relation. Who do you know? Who are you associated with? Who was the determining factor in someone's status, worth, or access back then? The same way that what tends to be now. The early church was persecuted because of the way that they subverted this social order within the Roman world. For instance, approximately 20% of the Roman Empire were enslaved peoples. Uh, women were given little or no rights apart from a husband. And then there's this little community growing around Gaius's dining room table that takes in the enslaved and the widow and starts calling them brother and sister with no uh, import of the social order of the world outside. It was bewildering and laughable until the community grew and grew so much so that it became threatening, threatening enough to combat. And it was around that time that Peter wrote, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now the English word good in this passage is the Greek kalos, which can equally be translated beautiful, lovely or shapely. Live a radiant life and do not hide the beauty of your shared life together away in secret or in safety, but live radiantly right in the thick of the lonely world. This English word witness literally means to see or experience something important for others to know about. It is to put on display the radiant way of living. The Oxford theologian Michael Green, in his study of the church's first 30 years, argues that 80% of early church evangelism did not come from a formal church outreach or uh, some sort of formal pastoral address, but rather 
was simply the peculiar and radiant communal life of the gathered church in the Roman world. Dallas Willard says, there is special evangelistic work to be done, of course, and there are special callings to do it. But if those in the churches really are enjoying the fullness of life, evangelism will be unstoppable and largely automatic. Do not underestimate the raw power of practicing the way of Jesus in community right in the thick of a lonely world. In fairness, though, there is a death required to this beautiful way to live because the Greek witness is martis, from which we get the English martyr. Because in the ancient world, to put this peculiar, peculiarly beautiful, socially threatening way of life on public display was synonymous with martyrdom. Today, a literal death is thankfully no longer the cause, but witness does still require a dying to myself, a death to my ego or reputation or persona, death to public opinion or career ambitions or lesser loves. These are the kind of deaths that we must die in order to live radiantly, to become his witnesses. To live the communal way of witness is both beautiful and it's costly. Look, the world is lonely, and the church is family. A family where you can belong apart from performance, where you can be known without shame, where you can remember who you are and who you aren't. The world is lonely, and the church is family. So may we be the kind of family that cares for one another in a way that speaks a better word to the every man for himself loneliness outside our doors. And may we be the kind of family that welcomes every son or daughter who would come in and sit at our table. Because what began around Gaius' dining room table and so many others, it continues today around ours. In the words of Andy Crouch, this is not a mass movement. In fact, it never will be. Because mass movements are by def definition impersonal. All real change starts with the number of people who can sit around a table in a small household. And that is how we've organized our church, around a stage on Sundays, but around a table midweek. And both are imperative expressions if we are to know fully what it means to practice the way of Jesus together in Portland. Around the table, that is where we know the joy of together, the uncomfortable formation of together, and the power of together witness. So because we believe the church is family, we do a vision series every year. And that's because if you're new around here, we're just trying to let you in on the family history, to let you know who we are and what we care about and what we value, to let you know what it means and what it looks like to really be a participant in this family. And so if you're brand new and you're just sort of exploring and you're saying, I'm not even thinking about rooting myself to you, I was just thinking about passing through once, then I want you to know you're so welcome here. And the door here is wide open at whatever level of participation and whatever place you are in your particular spiritual journey. But if you consider Bridgetown family, then we want you to know what it means to participate fully in this family. So if there's resonance in you around the vision that we believe God's entrusted us with, we just ask you to make five commitments. And they go like this. First, that you would practice the way of Jesus, that you actually would organize the entirety of your life around being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did. And then secondly, and the one that we're really zeroing in on today is that you would live in community. 
We organize our church around smaller Bridgetown communities that meet midweek around the table. That is how we live out this communal vision. And Bridgetown communities are the very heartbeat of this church. If Sunday around a stage is the place that we uh, come together in mass to worship, to see new things about who God is and his invitation to me, it is midweek around the table that we actually work that out and take it from a moment on a Sunday to a practice participatory way of life together with others. If you're already in a Bridgetown community, this is simply an invitation to re-up your commitment to the ordinary, underwhelming, occasionally flaky, but being redeemed and amazing people that you get to walk this journey with. If you're not in a Bridgetown community, this is an honest and hopefully mildly compelling invitation to join one. And the way in is through basics. You can register for basics right now on our website where you can learn more about Bridgetown communities and decide to step into one of those. It starts in the very first weeks of October. Uh, third, gather on Sundays. We actually do ask that you would prioritize the Sunday worship gathering as an essential part of your ongoing journey and that you would gather physically and in a local place, worshiping the incarnate God in an incarnated way. Fourth, that you would serve. Most of what we do, both in the church and beyond the, the walls of our church and in our city, is entirely volunteer-run. It takes all hands on deck to be the church. And so if you're not already serving, we do ask that you would uh, check out opportunities to join with one of our serving teams, either right here within our church or beyond our walls in our city. You can read all about that on our website and see where those opportunities are. And then finally, give. We're a church in the most ancient sense, and that includes being a people of generosity. We exist entirely, everything we do, on the generosity of the local family. 10% or tithing, it tends to be the biblical watermark, but if you're not giving at all, then 1% would be a fantastic place to start. And if you have been giving a 10% tithe that is automatically withdrawn for so long that it doesn't even register in your mind anymore, then maybe this is an opportunity to consider what it would mean to increase your generosity toward this church or another organization uh, in order to um, continue to give sacrificially in a way that you feel. And can I just say that as a pastor, this is obviously the stickiest one of these commitments for me to name and to name quickly. I'm completely aware of that. And so I'll just say for today, that I believe that the whole of the way of Jesus leads to life, and that includes our finances. I practice that myself, and I'll never ask you to do anything that I am not practicing myself. So here's the five commitments. Practice the way of Jesus, live in community, gather on Sundays, serve, and give. And please hear me on this. This is 100% invitation. There's no compulsion, there's no pressure, there's no spin, there's no PR. And in addition, if you're just wondering, what are the most key ways that I could serve this local body right now? I know for sure that we are looking for leaders to join us and worship with us downtown on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m., rooting your life there and choosing to be a participant and, and make your presence felt. There would be a massive way that you can serve. And I also know that within our kids' ministry that we're in need of more volunteers. We've seen our kids' ministry grow like crazy, and that's a beautiful thing, and it means that we need our kids' ministry volunteers, those who are committed to the discipleship of our children, to grow like crazy. So if you're looking for somewhere to start, there's a couple of places to start. For today, I want to close with this. On the final night of his life, 
just before falling on his knees in agony in Gethsemane where he was arrested and then eventually crucified, Jesus prayed loud enough for anyone around to hear, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Glory. That's what Jesus says he gave us, praying to the Father on the last night of his life. He says, I've given them glory. It's the very same word that Moses used for his longing to see God face to face. Now show me your glory. It's the same word that John used when he opened his gospel with the astounding claim. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And it's the word Jesus prayed. And it's what it looks like when his people practice his way together. I've given them the glory that you gave me. Our third son, Amos, he was born with a severe heart condition. As I understand it, uh, among the most severe that an infant can be diagnosed with in the womb and potentially have a chance of surviving after birth. And so his life was hanging in the balance. Uh, multiple open heart surgeries followed by at least 30 days on life support in the intensive care unit right after birth if it all went perfectly. And the doctors responsibly prepped us that nothing here was guaranteed. There's so much that we know, but there's even more that we don't know. There's plenty of life-altering side effects that could become a part of his story, even if he survives the surgeries. And so while they got him all prepped to be cut open and have his tiny little five-day-old rib cage pulled apart, Kirsten and I were sitting next to him in this hospital room as she wept and I prayed psalms over him before they wheeled his body away. And then they took him and it'd be five hours at least before we knew anything. I couldn't sit still. So I stepped out for a walk and right there on the sidewalk outside the hospital, I ran into Brian Haddon a member from this community. What are you doing here, man? Oh, well, I knew today was the big day, so I'm walking seven circles around the hospital praying like Jericho. And suddenly, I knew that I was not alone. Brian, a living picture of the God who is with me in green pastures and quiet waters and the God who is with me through the valley of the shadow of death. And Amos made it. He is healthy and happy and distracting half the room during worship earlier this morning. <laughs> and grateful is far too small a word for how I feel about that because not everyone does. But the question that I want to leave you with today is this one. Which one of those is the glory of the Lord? Is it the healing of a child that his parents were helpless to give him? Or is it the Jericho March prayers of a friend? Prayers that would have gone entirely unnoticed and unnamed and unseen had I not walked out of the hospital at that very moment. Which of those is the glory of the Lord? You can decide.
But I hope, I really hope that there's some deep instinct in you that wants to say both. Mm -hmm.